from Jesus to the first man, Adam. And you might remember what it sounds like. You know, Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, the son of Nathan, the son of Levi, etc. You know, we're not going to read them all, but as it goes along, it's that same formula, the son of such and such. And as you come down the line, you read to Adam. And then Luke says something interesting about Adam. It says, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Adam is considered to be the son of God. And God is to be considered the father of Adam. And right from the beginning of creation, God has really related to us as father. The expectation was that humanity would be obedient children, obedient sons, that it would be conformed into the image of the father. In fact, you might remember a special way that God created human beings. He created them in his image. They were supposed to be his image bearers. They were supposed to be conformed into his image and live into his image. And this is why the traditions and beliefs of our fathers, our earthly fathers, have such a huge sway. Fathers were made, after their father Adam, to lead their families, and their abdication from this role doesn't have no effect. Fathers, whether they're present or not present, still have profound influences on their families and their societies. In fact, if the father of a family doesn't go to church, even if the mother does, only around 1 in 50 children will stick it out in the faith. That is atrocious numbers. Yet if the father is an active member of a church, the chances of children sticking out in the faith will go up 37 times. Another survey found that if a child comes to faith, there's only about a 3.5% chance that any other member of their household will follow. The number will go up if the mother comes to faith at around 17%. But shockingly, if the father is the one who comes to faith first, 93% of the time, the whole family will follow. Amazing. But this shouldn't surprise us as Christians. Why? Because fatherhood is right at the center of the Bible. In fact, you can read the whole of Scripture as the establishment of a household. God has set aside men to be the spiritual leaders of their home, and no matter how hard we might fight against this, it's simply baked into the fabric of reality. And today, Peter has a very important lesson to teach the church about the fatherhood of God. This gives hope to those who don't have fathers, or whose fathers weren't present, or who weren't helpful. Because ultimately, we belong to Christ, and we have been grafted into a new household. And we have a new father to pattern our lives after. And so I have three points that I want to walk through as we go through First Peter. My first point is this. God is our just father. Number two, God is our merciful father. And number three, God is our sovereign father. So to start off with, point one, God is our just father. And so we're going to basically tackle this chunk of scripture piece by piece. And so we're going to start with the first piece, verse 17. It says this, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so Peter kind of hits us off on a serious note. He's saying you need to take seriously how you live your life. You have to live with a measure of discipline. Remember last week you talked about this idea of like, girding up the loins of your mind. 
You have to be ready to do battle with your base desires. You have to tame the passions of your flesh. You have to keep sober-minded and not being given over to changing fads or changing belief systems. You have to set your hope fully on Jesus. And that is the guiding principle in every area of your life. And he says here, if you call God the Holy One, if you remember from last week, God uh, says you must be holy for I am holy. If you call Him your Father, you have to recognize that God will behave towards you as a Father. Like if this is a reality, let's think for a second. If you're calling God your Father, you have to have some expectation that God will act like a Father, don't you? That God will do things that holy, loving, gracious fathers normally do for their children. You are held accountable to Him as His dearly beloved child. And the first thing is, you're not a latchkey kid. God is not a helicopter parent. He is intimately involved. And Peter here, he's calling us back to a word we saw at the beginning of the chapter, and that is this word, exile. And you remember what that word means, hopefully, from the first sermon we had in this uh, series. It's this, uh, it carries this meaning of a stranger, a fugitive, a wanderer, a person who doesn't have a people and he doesn't have a place. And we remember in the ancient world that this was a fate worse than death. People would rather die then end up without a people, without a place. They would rather die than be exiled. Uh, when Cain was cursed in Genesis 4, he was cursed to wander the earth without a people and a place. When the Apostle John was sentenced to death, he was thrown into a pot of boiling oil, and the tradition goes that he was not killed by this. They couldn't kill him, actually. God supernaturally protected him, as the story goes. And instead, they exiled him, a fate worse than that, to the island of Patmos. And that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. And so for the Christians, Peter's calling you an exile. We no longer belong to our former household, to our former way of life, to our former heritage. We are now children of the Most High God. And if we are exiled from this world and its household, we better pay close attention to the household that we do belong to. He reminds the church of this. And the first thing he wants them to know is that the father of this new household is impartial. And that word impartial here means to show no favoritism. Now when we were growing up, if we were privileged to have a father, our father was really the first judge we knew. He was the first kind of person with legal authority in our lives, in a sense, legal in the more of a loose sense. But our fathers adjudicated between us as siblings. Every time there was a wrong committed and something needed to be put to place, it was our fathers who set things right. And depending on the wisdom of our earthly fathers, it could have been a positive experience for you, or it could have been a really negative experience for you, or a bit of a mixed bag, sometimes good and sometimes bad. But even the best fathers have flawed judgment. Sometimes they were arbitrary. Sometimes they overlooked sin. They didn't really seem to care. Sometimes they overlooked one child's sin and came down hard on another child. And as children, we quickly learned how to exploit our fathers and their weaknesses. We learned how best to avoid their eyes, to avoid their attention. We learned how best to manipulate them to get better outcomes. We learned how to leverage their biases in our favor. And as much as our earthly fathers may have tried to be impartial, they were only finite men. Peter has a stern warning for us. God is not like your earthly father. 
Your earthly father was partial. Even the best of us are partial. But God is impartial. You're not calling a mere man your father. You are calling on the God who judges impartially. You are calling that person father. And he shows no favoritism. He doesn't let us off because we are a special little snowflake. He doesn't prefer one child over another. He doesn't make much of the labors of one and overlook the labors of another. The judgment of God will be without respective persons according to each person's work. So how should we respond to that? What's the kind of what's the thing that we should think when we go, hang on a minute, the God we worship, who we call Father is impartial, what should we think? Peter says, fear. Because if you call him Father, then he has the right to hold you accountable for your behavior. And if necessary, he will discipline you for it. Have a listen to how Paul puts it in Hebrews 12, 7-8. He says this, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Every passage. But Paul's saying this, he's saying you have to understand that when you conduct yourself with fear, you've got to take God seriously, you've got to respect him. Can't look for loopholes, opportunities to shirk your responsibility as if God is like your earthly father who you can trick. We know that he sees all, he sees all our work, and that we will be rewarded and punished for our deeds. But listen, we can also be comforted by his discipline. If your father disciplined you when you were growing up, it is a good sign that he loved you because he cared about who you were going to become. Now, he may have been heavy-handed or light-handed, but he loved you. And it's the same with God. He does not let you get away with destructive or depraved behavior. And if he does discipline you, then you are truly his sons. And what an amazing thing to be a poor child of God. And you know that he loves you because he disciplines you. And Hebrews says here that if you're left without discipline, he says you are illegitimate. In the sense that you may think you're his son or his daughter, but you are not. The serving reality is this, we will either receive a well done, good and faithful servant, or we will receive a depart from me, I never knew you. Those are the two options that lay before us when it comes to God. Both parties believe that God is their father, one is correct. And it's not a good thing to get away with indwelling sin. And it's not a good thing to find that God doesn't seem to care about what we do and how we conduct ourselves. He doesn't seem to intervene. He doesn't seem to arrest us when we fail. He doesn't seem to come in and sort anything out. If we go from worse to worse, that is a bad sign. Because if God loved you and you were his child, he would do something. It might not be pleasant, but he's going to do something. And he's going to stop you from going down that path. It should be a firm wake-up call for all of us. But we've got to remember who our Father is and His character. And that leads me to my second point, our merciful Father. Let's stick in our passage again, verse 18. 
Peter says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now Peter turns his attention to who we were beforehand. And he, he keeps doing this, doesn't he? He reminds us of who we are and who you used to be. Right? And he's doing the same here. He's saying, you are children of God, but you are not children of your forefathers in their futility. He's going after the godless heritage of both the Gentiles, but also the Jews. We've got to remember the Jews are the primary audience to whom he's writing to. And the word futile here means empty, pointless, useless. It's something that doesn't contribute any value whatsoever to a person. That's what that word futility means. Now, Peter isn't saying that everything we inherit from our forefathers is useless. But if it doesn't conform to God's word and his kingdom, then the most friendly thing that can be said about it is futile. It contributes nothing of value, and then, and more often than not, it creates a huge stumbling block to the truth of the gospel. Have a listen to how Paul uh, kind of t- touches on this same uh, concept in uh, Ephesians 4, 17 18. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Here's that word, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. Here is is the problem. The futility of our presuppositions, assumptions, and views of life that are developed and passed down by men through men. They are ignorant to the revealed knowledge of God. And in their ignorance, they develop traditions and beliefs that are inconsistent with reality. And because these beliefs are so entrenched, when the truth of God comes and challenges them and confronts them on their belief systems, what happens? It comes right up against hardness of heart. It comes right up against people who do not want to change their beliefs, who do not want to come around, who do not want to see the truth for what it is and conform themselves to it. Ask yourself this. When you come to a passage of Scripture that seems to run completely counter to the beliefs that you have inherited, what do you do? Do you reinterpret the Scripture to match more closely with what you think? That is how Satan interprets Scripture, is it not? Do you throw out the truth of Scripture as irrelevant or patently false? That's how the unregenerate world treats Scripture. Or do you bend towards the truth of God? Do you give in to its message? Or do you change your opinion based on what the Word of God says? And Peter is saying that the work of Jesus in a person's life says he ransoms them from lies to truth. It transforms them from ignorance to knowledge, from hostility to family. And we have to be willing to let go of our traditions. And that's what this word really means. That word forefathers, it's this Greek word, uh, patroparadotus, literally kind of means father tradition. And it's this tradition that we've inherited from our earthly fathers. And people hold tightly to their tradition. And yet Peter says you have to be redeemed from it. You have to be rescued from it. And Stephen the martyr knew this when he preached to the Jews of his day, trying to convince them that Jesus was their long-awaited Messiah. And no matter what he said to them, it was like pounding on a brick wall. 
nothing seemed to get through. And he says this against them, Acts 7.51. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Notice this last bit. As your fathers did, so do you. Oh, that's pretty intense. How do you think the Jews reacted to that? Were they going to be stoked by that? Do you think that they're going to be they're going to receive it and think, oh, that's a good point. We're going to ponder this. No, they they killed him in that instant. In fact, you see Jesus over and over confronting the Jews of his day for their tradition. For instance, Matthew 15, 6 to 9, he says, So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, that word again, futility, do they worship me. Teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. They had the audacity to teach their tradition as if it was the very commands of God. As if that was what God wanted them to do. And Jesus is saying, when your tradition runs counter to the word of God, it causes your worship to be vain, futile, empty. And Jesus often challenges the tradition of the Pharisees. He actually has this phrase that you hear all the time. He says this, you have heard it said, here's your tradition, right? You have heard it said, but I say to you, your rabbis, your teachers, they say this, but this is what I'm telling you. Jesus literally has to rescue us from our tradition. Do not overlook that fact. The ransom that was paid here in Peter is against our traditions. Uh, Some Christians swing so far to the other way when they hear stuff like this that they say that we should jettison our tradition altogether. We should have no tradition. But the irony is that that statement in of itself is a tradition. You can't escape tradition. We all have tradition. We all have things we pass down from generation to generation. The question is not whether we have tradition, but which tradition. Will we choose futile tradition, or will our tradition bend to the Word of God? Is our traditions and practices informed by the Word of God and given by the Lord Jesus, or are they futile? Are they worthless? Are they empty? One tradition will make a man soft to the Word of God. And another tradition will harden his heart. If your parents are Christians, praise God. If your parents are Christians and they handed down to you a godly heritage and a tradition, that is good to hear. But remember, you are not off the hook. It's not enough that your parents called themselves Christians. It's not enough that your parents read scripture. The Jews had the scriptures too, did they not? And did they not call upon God? And yet they still had useless traditions. It's the precious blood of Christ that ransomed us. And you want the blood of Christ to cover over every tradition and belief that you pass down to the next generation. This is no small matter to God. If you think that God would rescue us from our dead tradition only to tolerate us continuing in it, you are dead wrong. There was a reason why Jesus went after the traditions of the Pharisees with such vigor and ferocity. And if God paid such an ultimate price to set us free from our former ignorance, what children are we if we reject him as father in favor of the futile ways handed down to us? 
This new way of life given to us by Jesus must be as precious to us as it is to God. Remember that. Your new traditions, your new way of life, your new heritage, purchased, won by the blood of Christ. Don't be apathetic. Don't neglect it. Don't give in to the path of least resistance. Don't fall back into the way of your forefathers. If you call upon God as your Father, walk with Him in fear. It leads me to my third point. Our Sovereign Father. Let's finish our passage. Verse 21 20, and 21. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter's going to remind us of who we belong to. We belong to the one who is the sovereign maker of heaven and earth, the one who knows all things before anything was made. God foreknew and predetermined that his son would die for humanity before the foundation of the world, before time and space began, before the commencement of existence, God existed in eternity. And this same God has revealed to us the truth of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The same God who can bring light from darkness, who can bring light from death, who can make uh, bring muscles from dry bones and complexity from chaos, manifested here his son to us. Jesus is the vehicle through him faith and hope in the Father would be restored in this fallen world. And how was Jesus manifested to us? Well, he came first as a baby in his incarnation, in his birth. And he was attested to by his father's testimony when he was baptized. And after performing many miraculous and wonderful signs to the people, he died and rose again from the dead. And this last one is the one that Peter wants to hone in on. It's through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that we have come to know the same holy God who raised him. It is through the power of the resurrection that we too were born again to a living home. So as Christians, our hope can no longer be in the traditions and beliefs of our forefathers who tried to help us see the reality of this world and of existence, but we're ignorant. Our hope and faith, we see here, are not in our forefathers, but in God, because of this one event, the resurrection of Jesus. We don't have to trust the words of philosophers. We don't need to turn to self-help gurus or to the revealed wisdom of the age. We have the very word of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Our hope is in him. Our faith is in him. And he alone will stand the test of time. So brothers and sisters, this is a really good opportunity to take stock of the traditions of your family. What are you passing down? Are your traditions and practices futile, empty, vain? 
What about the ones you inherited from your father? Did it serve to open up your eyes to the truth of the word of God? Or was it empty? Did it put a stumbling block in the way? Did it make Jesus more beautiful to you? Or did it make it all the more difficult to come and believe in Jesus? Parents, what are you passing down to your children? Do you think about the traditions and practices of your family being centered on the person of Jesus? I want to share with you some ideas to get you creative use this morning. Because ultimately it's your job to do it. And so you have to start thinking about it. I want to, I want to share with you a little bit about a, a futile tradition passed down to me. I grew up nominally Catholic, which is a whole can of worms when it comes to futile traditions, but we're not going to open it. When the time came to attend Mass on the Lord's Day, all I knew about Mass was it was a bad time and no one liked it. So why were we there? My dad refused to go. My mom was always like crazy stressed in the lead up to Mass and during it and after it. She was snappy. My nana throughout the service was always giving me disapproving looks because I had ants in my pants the whole time. I couldn't sit still growing up. And when the whole ordeal was over, I only knew one thing. I hated going to Mass, and I never wanted to go to it. And it was a huge stumbling block to Christianity in general, this experience that I had. And now that I'm a father, and my children are coming along, now, praise God, to an evangelical church service, I can feel like I've dodged the bullet of tradition. Not true. I'm still setting a tradition for my children. And this service might look very different to a Catholic Mass, but I can just as easily take the practices of my family, my previous family, and inflict those same practices on my children, can't I? Instead, this is what I want for my family. Instead of like looking with trepidation when church is coming along, I want them to look with joy towards worshipping with the saints, to gathering together on the Lord's Day, to worshipping Him. I want my kids to look forward to Sunday with enthusiasm. I don't want the kids dealing with grumpy dad. I don't want them dealing with a stressed out mom trying to get them out of the door. I want them to see that we love church and we love worshipping God. And we love hearing his words. And we love praying together. And one of the traditions that I want to implement in my family is this idea of the Lord's Day Feast. You don't have to do this. This is just something that I'm thinking of doing. And hopefully it's helpful to you. When we get home from church, this is something that I want to put in place when my kids get a bit older. I want to have a good dinner, a big feast, and have an excellent time. I want to make sure that I'm in the best mood as possible. I leave my troubles at the door, and I come in, and we feast. We have lots of good food. We have lots of fun. We rejoice. We have a lot of good positive energy, because this Lord's Day feast is this little foretaste of the wedding supper of the Lamb. I want them to know that every time we gather on the day that Jesus rose again from the dead, we celebrate this new kingdom with a feast. And we're going to put energy into that meal. We're going to cook the best food we can for that week. We want to be as present as we can. We want to have lots of delicious dessert. We want to pray with joy. We want to give glory to our Father in heaven. And instead of passing on the futile traditions of my family when Mass came around, I want to latch onto new ones that open up the scriptures to inspire and communicate to my children the glory of being in God's family and the glory of worshipping Him and feasting with Him. And before long, I'm sure that this tradition will probably sneak into my soul as much as it does to them. Now this is just a tiny example of how you can do it. You don't need to do that. 
but you have my express permission to think, what traditions do I have? What traditions are informed by Scripture? And do they serve to open up the Scriptures to my children or close them off to it? Think that through. You definitely need to get creative with applying Scripture to all the traditions and practices of your home. You don't want your children having to grow up to navigate all the stumbling blocks you put before them so that hopefully, by the grace of God, they will end up in faith in Jesus. You want to make sure that there's no icebergs that will crash into them and sink their faith. We want their faith and hope to be the same as ours. We want it to be in God and Him alone. And so shall all our traditions point to Him. As beloved children, let's build our whole lives upon Him and the truth of God's Word. And so I hope I've gotten you a bit psyched, a bit pumped, ready to try to make that kind of influence and change in your life. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have ransomed us from the futile ways we inherited from our forefathers. Lord, for all of us, if you go back far enough, there is someone who did not know and believe nor trust in you. And Lord, whether we are a first generation of believers or the second or the third, or we have no idea how far it goes back, we thank you that you rescued our household and our family lineage from the futility handed down him. Lord, we thank you that you ransomed us with the precious blood of your son Jesus. That you rescued us from ignorance and not knowing the truth to finally knowing and believing in your son. I want to pray especially for fathers here. Lord, would these fathers hand down new traditions that glorify and honor you? I pray, Lord, for families. Would these families know and love you based on their traditions and practices? Would they not become stumbling blocks that get in the way of the gospel, but opportunities for them to open their eyes to the truth of Scripture? Father, most importantly, would you help us that our